there are certain questions that you just don't expect to hear in certain contexts. And this is influenced by our perspective on things. Let me give you an example. So something that I have some level of interest in, but I don't consider myself anything approaching a level of expert or particularly knowledgeable. Uh, But I like to watch sometimes the Boston Celtics play basketball. And the question came up the other day interviewing a player. And the question was, how was your wind? So the context for this is player on the team, Robert Williams uh, the third, who plays center, uh, had a meniscus surgery last year at the end of the winter or the spring, and then he had another one in like September. And so he hadn't been able to play really, and you know, much anticipated return for people who follow the team. And so after playing the game, reporters, right, this is a big talking point, so people want to go and get quotes from him, and they go and they ask, and they say, how was your wind? When I heard that, it just seemed so strange because coming from the perspective of the kinds of things that I like to do, principally running and cycling, right? These individual endurance sports to think about that as a phrase seems totally archaic, right? It seems like an anachronism to have people asking this. And it's, here's this like multi-million dollar sport just on the level of any individual player you know, in billions and billions of dollars to, you know, on a larger scale, right? This is a huge amount of money invested. And then to hear people asking, how's your wind? And the fact that, you know, for the player, for Robert Williams, it was not this thing that made no sense to him. He related to that and, you know, engaged in the question. And I'm not trying to criticize and say it's bad to say that, you know, that's your vernacular that's your vernacular, right? And all of our sports in cult- world cultures have their own vernaculars. Right? That's just the way people behave, right? But to hear that from that point of view as a runner is so strange. So this prompted me to try to look up some stuff uh, just briefly, no, not kind of any kind of real research, but just the kind of stuff we find on Google. And I, you know, looking up stuff about basketball, you know, you know, wind, how to improve your wind. And, you know, in the five minutes I spent looking at that, one quote that I found that jumped out at me because it sort of seemed to be more of this kind of like vernacular about sport and fitness and performance that to me as an endurance athlete who has tried to read a lot about and understand a lot of that space uh, seemed kind of strange. And this one site gave the following piece of advice, quote, long range cardio is needed to build up the lung capacity and slow twitch muscles. You need to stay on the basketball court as long as possible, unquote. Lung capacity, that's something that I've sometimes heard kicked around. Long range cardio, right? We're sort of saying endurance. But again, I think to people who have even stepped a little bit into the shallow end of endurance sports, this kind of language sounds, again, very anachronistic. Like, why are people talking like this still? You know, not because we're saying that the style of speech is a problem, but what's actually the interesting point to consider is that 
the ways in which people who study and are kind of on what we might consider to be the leading edge of this endurance aerobic training systems, these aren't phrases or references that they use, right? We don't talk about lung capacity, right? That's not really a thing. There were these, you know, all kinds of scams come up constantly, people trying to scam people. Um, the, the little like uh, mouthpiece that you could use that was going to raise your lactate threshold by training with your, you know, this little uh, mouthpiece and to somehow, I guess, restrict your airflow, right? I think is probably just like a, you know, trying again to peddle this, these sort of lung capacity training things. Now, we might say that who cares, right? People are going to talk how they're going to talk, right? You just said that's the vernacular. Why do we have to make a big deal out of it? There's no significance to that. But if we ask, how do we talk when we talk about sport? If we find the answer that we talk in a lot of different ways about sport when we talk about sport. And that there's probably a lot more depth and meaning and significance to that than maybe we realize. You know, words are carriers for ideas. That's why language is so powerful. Words carry and they signify, right? They convey meaning, right? They have a certain, we can think of these as being, you know, utilitarian as being like tool belt level things, you know, get me the milk out of the refrigerator, right? But these things have meaning. And I think a lot of people in athletics some can fall into this trap of jocks and nerds, this sort of like anti thinking approach that if you think too much somehow like I don't know is that going to like corrode your athletic ability your you know VO2 max is going to go down or your you know vertical leap is going to contract or something like that and that seems sort of crazy right because that's not really the way this stuff works right but the anxiety the avoidance seems to be there when I think about running as a sport specifically And I hear a phrase like, how's your wind? That brought to mind this book, um, Burt Wilson, Marathon Winner, um, which was published in 1914. And the author, unfortunately, I can't remember their name, but uh, there was like maybe, looks like there were maybe six, eight books, and they all, Burt Wilson, and then, you know, fill in the break, operative, uh, whatever, right? Kind of maybe might remind you of like the Hardy Boys. Hardy Boys in the case of the, you know, Sunken ship, right? This sort of like, here's the protagonist, here's the context, right? And sort of trying to serialize, right? No, clearly not Bert Wilson, you know, not as successful <laughs> serialization as the Hardy Boys. Um, but they talk about Bert Wilson getting his second wind. It's sort of like this superpower and sort of this critical uh, theme in, in that story, right? Is like when Bert Wilson gets to the second wind, this stuff happens. So when I hear people in 2022 talking about getting your wind up, it brings my mind back to this example from 1914. And that's 108 years apart. And on the scale of the history of sport and training for sport, that's the vast majority of the timeline that we're working with. You know, the first Olympic marathon was run in 1904, after all, right? So when we think about this scale of history, when we talk about this subject, when we talk about sport, 
right? I think a scale of approximately 1900 on, and they say we're dealing approximately with a century, right? This first century of sport, I think is sort of a good conceptual framework, right? So we might think of 1900s as being modern in the scale of human history, but in the scale of sport, right, we're looking at a timeline that's maybe about a century. Now we can, obviously we should acknowledge that you know, that's not really the scale of sport, right? Sport and games have been going on forever as long as human culture has existed. But if we're talking about sport in the modern sense, right, what most people are going to associate with that, I think we're looking at something that's really grown primarily between 1900 and today. And yes, you know, there are origins in the late 1800s because really we're looking at a modern sporting phenomena as something that emerges, right, due to you know, the second industrial revolution and the rise of urbanization and, you know, then the development of media information technologies driving all of this stuff forward. So the focus of this episode today, which we're going to call How's Your Wind? And the focus of this podcast overall is going to be to talk about how do we think and therefore talk about sport and why does that matter? So that is, you know, to try to understand training and make sense of that, but to recognize that when we're trying to make sense of training, we're trying to make sense of performance and and fitness and the experience of sport, to do that is an act of conversation. It's an act of discussion. And the ways in which we talk about things, that's going to have a huge impact on the kinds of conclusions that we reach, the kind of answers that we generate. Because how we talk, when we talk about sport, makes a big difference, right? It shapes our experience. We learn what to think based on what other people tell us the experience is. Of course, we can all have our own experience, and we do, and that's probably a really important part of sport, is having your own experience. But we just aren't likely to have an experience that is completely in isolation from everybody else's. It can't be purely original or unique because it's impossible to separate ourselves from the voices of others. So rather than maybe just talk about stuff and pretend that the idea is to try to figure out the workout or to define the outcome of a race or to speculate about possibilities, and all that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that, but to recognize the ways in which we go about that and the vernaculars that we apply or the academic vernaculars that we create, right, and that we see as more elevated than our common vernaculars, although maybe not necessarily superior, that's going to shape how we think. And that when we're talking about training in this podcast, both in this episode and as many episodes as run for this, that's going to be the prevailing theme. And to try to apply the value of multiple different points of view to try to understand how do things work the way they work. And is it possible that that's maybe going to improve our ability to get more out of training and how we train? So to talk about this today, and to talk about this in a couple different parts, going to look at the modern world and modern sport, where does this come from? Going to look at the concept of discipline in sports culture. Going to look at the concept of fuck it in sports culture, who cares about discipline? going to look at 
the concept of logic versus rationalism. Going to look at the so what, and then we're going to do a conclusion, an exit ticket. How does this have meaning? Is this something that we can imply in any way to try to make a little bit more sense of what we're doing? Can we try to get a little bit more value out of it? So let's start with our first part, modern world and modern sport. So when we think about how things change, right? what can we create as a reference point to understand how things change over time? Because if we're going to say that how we talk when we talk about sport is important, then I think we probably would be hypocritical if we didn't in our own space try to establish some clear norms or you know, norms is such like a professional development word, right? Um, maybe not use the word norms, but we want to like establish the ground rules of like, okay, when we're talking about this, this is what we mean. That's our common reference point to that, right? Because we want to try to understand the language better, right? And like, what is the selective significance of using language in certain ways and not others? So let's define a concept of how to think about how things change. Right, and so we're going to think about the population of the world, human population of the world over time. So, if you take a graph and you put it on the scale of a piece of eight and a half by eleven inch paper, and you're graphing growth in population over time, okay? So, on one axis, you have population, right, in billions, and then on the other axis, you have scale in years. And we'll sort of say approximately from about 10,000 BCE to today, right? So that's about 12,000 years, 12,022 years. What does that look like? Well, on the scale of that eight and a half by 11 inch piece of paper, what you're going to see is that the graph seems to almost be like a right angle, right? Where the exponential growth at about the year 1800 is so significant that on that scale, it looks like you could simply draw a horizontal line and then 800, 1800 to switch basically to a ver- almost a vertical line, right? And that is an insane change, right? That's absolutely absurd to see that massive of a change because what it's showing is that up until about 1800, the human population basically was the same. It didn't really change. So what caused this sudden, overwhelmingly exponential explosion in population? Well, to figure that out, we got to zoom in on that graph a little bit more. And if we zoom in a little bit more, right, if we expand our scale or we change our perspective, what we see is that around 1500 to 1700, the slope starts to go up. And there's even a little bit of a suggestion in the model that before the bubonic plague before the Black Death, which I want to say maybe may have killed off as much as 40% of the estimated world population. Right? I don't know how much stock you want to put in these numbers um, right? because the process of trying to estimate what's going on is obviously that. It's an estimate. But it may have even been starting to go up a little bit before that, and there's a little bit of a dip, and then it sort of builds back up. So maybe this transition would have been a little bit more smoother there um, from the period of the Renaissance to the Industrial Revolution. So 
if we had a little bit smoother transition there, it might be more obvious to look at that period of 1500 to 1700. And what's changing in there? Well, the graph isn't going to tell you that, right? The graph is just suggesting that this is the point where the slope is starting to sort of, this sort of like pre-lead um, into the massive exponential ex growth explosion, right? You're starting to see this acceleration, right? This ramp rate, which prior to everything before that is very different. But because of what happened from 1800 on and the perspective it creates on that graph, it's easy to overlook that. Prior to that period, prior to those two centuries, the basic, what it looks to be the case, that the basic way of reasoning and thinking about the world is this idea that we can represent um, through referring to Aristotle. I think it's always a little bit conceited, a little bit white Western to say that, okay, yep, Aristotle did this, and this defines all thinking that we need to know before the modern world. I mean, that's not just you know, white Western-centric, it's also just probably historically inaccurate um, because, you know, people today don't know about everybody and everything and our information technologies are just so much more prolific than they were back then. So to assume that everybody is literally thinking in the process of Aristotle is a little bit absurd. Maybe it's better to say that, you know, people like Aristotle are the people who kind of make record, right? And they happen to be the people who get preserved, right? Because we know logically there must be um, ideas and thinking that was created that, you know, didn't make it through, um, you know, the process of, of record preservation, right? Which is a very delicate process for a long time. Um, you know, and even now in digital technologies, right, there's no such thing as guaranteed uh, information preservation. All right. So having, you know, put out those 500 qualifiers, Aristotle's model of reasoning was to basically say that you would look at something you would observe, right? That's sort of a sciencey sounding word. And then you would use logic to make sense of this. So an example would be um, if you are observing a class of high school students and they're in a subject and maybe they're in, I don't know, uh, health science and they're all asleep, right? Aristotle's thinking model would say, well, logically, health science puts people to sleep. Okay, and that would be it, right? That would be you would use your logic, and that's a logical conclusion, right? You're associating one thing with another thing, right? And, and you know, we'd say, well, that's that correlation is, there's no distinction between correlation and causation, really, implied in that, okay? Um, the revolution between 1500 and 1700 that makes that exponential explosion possible, that probably made the Industrial Revolution possible, is this revolution of thinking where people add a third step. And this is, you know, the sort of, you know, reference points for this would in, you know, public school it might be like Galileo or Francis Bacon or Isaac Newton or Nicholas Copernicus um, you know, or if you're a little bit, um, you know, more specific, you might then get into like Rene Descartes and people like that. And you might say, well, how, you know, what do they have to do with this? Well, they're adding this additional step. And that step is to like, not believe everything you see, right? Just because we see something 
and we reach our logical conclusion doesn't mean that we know the answer, right? That's not good enough. So what you have to do is you have to experiment, right? You can't trust your senses alone. They're not enough. You have to experiment, right? You have to find a way to validate that. So that means our logic isn't the answer. Our logic would be in the scientific method, which is what this leads into, right? This thing that we learn in public school and grade school level, right? Science curriculum, the scientific method. And it's not really specific to science. It's the mode of modern reasoning for everything that's an effective system of making sense of the world, okay? Is to experiment, to try to prove things, to try to find evidence for your idea, your your logical conclusion from your observation. And we call it the scientific method, but again, like we actually use this in, you know, think of a subject like history, which we're also talking about here. History uses this too, right? You need to use that. You know, and reference point for this change is the Descartes quote, I think, therefore I am. And that gets thrown around. I think people use these, pick up these quotes, they get stuck in their head and we don't think about what they mean, maybe. Well, essentially as I would interpret that, the significance of that quote and why that's something that's been passed along and passed along and passed along is because it's drawing our attention to the fact that the only thing we can really prove through our thinking is ourself, right? That's the only thing we can improve. We can prove everything else. We have to go out and try to do something externally to validate that. Beyond the fact that I exist because I think we can't reasonably prove anything else. And that's a really important uh, concept to establish because when we start to see a shift to trying to prove things, the level of accuracy increases dramatically. That dramatic increase in accuracy has a lot to do with sport. I mean, first of all, the changes to the world, right? the increase in population, the development of urban spaces, the technologies that are possible because of this new improved method of thinking, right? It's not really new really at all. It's just like adding a critical additional step of like, does what we think actually make sense? You know, another example would be spontaneous generation. You know, people used to have this theory that there was an essential force in the air that just caused things to burst into life. And that for most living things weren't like understood to reproduce biologically in the way that we would understand now, but they just sort of like, you know, crocodiles erupting from the mud. Like these are things that people actually thought and were considered to be uh, valid and, and things worth exploring. And now we think of this being totally absurd. Kind of how, uh, in a way, today, to people who are really into endurance sports and understanding um, those sports, if you hear another professional sport, sports that have way more money than endurance sports, talk about getting their wind up and having a meaningful conversation about that, it can leave you scratching your head and being like, where, like, how are we in such different places in these sports? And, um, you know, that's really the critical shift here, right? Is the shift to new ways of thinking. But we also see that in sport and in society as a whole, it's not to say that this scientific method emergence, the emergence of the scientific method, didn't purely 
remove, right, all less ideal forms of thinking and then replace it exclusively with the new optimal, you know, methods of thought. We still see that there are other forms of thought in society. And in sport, we see this too, because the way we think about sport isn't always driven by rational values, right? It can be driven by any number of other things, you know, because not everything changes, but the historical memory, right? And so this is maybe a little bit complicated, but I think it's really important. Our historical memory of the world is that like you have a sort of pre-modern world, and then you have the explosion of the industrial revolution, science of chemistry, medical technologies, living technologies, basically people's children stop dying constantly in, in infancy. I think for a long time on average, maybe two children would survive for any you know, uh, mated couple of humans for basically all of human history until 1800. And now we've had this population growth, which if you like Hans Rosling idea, right, will probably um, level off at about 11 billion people, having been, you know, about 1 billion or less than a billion for all of human history up until two centuries ago. That makes us think that we are so different, right? We're so different from people of just 200 years ago. And it causes us to say, well, everything we're doing is better and more effective. And that historical memory causes us to not be critical, right? To not be as questioning of things because there's a sense of we've arrived, right? We've transcended and now we're at that final form. And, you know, that's one of the problems of saying, you know, modern world, modern sport. And that is a really like, has a really like silencing effect on thinking and and asking questions about some of the stuff that we see, right? Because the sort of implication is, well, we're really modern as a society, so we need to question that. And that idea of perceived competence, right, or insisted competence is a silencing force in our culture, right? I can't question, hey, why are we talking about how's your wind? You know, I would want to know with basketball athletes, you know, What's the correlation between different styles of play, you know, blood lactate levels, heart rate data, what's the athlete's VO2 max, what correlations are we seeing between this and accuracy with different types of shot making, right? Are there different things, you know, I would, that's what I would want to be looking at. And asking a question, how's your wind, seems to me to be like not modern sport, Right. And that's not to th- try to throw or attack any particular sport or, you know, throw one under the bus or something like that and say, aha, you know, we individual endurance sports, we're superior. I think that that kind of dial- dialogue is basically useless. But the point is we still do a lot from logic. It's in us to react from how we feel, right? You know, people getting afraid, right? People getting hungry, right? Like feelings are powerful things. We can't turn that off. Okay, As, no matter what we want to do, it's not in us to turn that off naturally. Okay, you can't meditate away these things. You know, and really, if you're not experiencing these feelings, we've come to recognize that like you should be feeling these things in certain ways 
And that's what, you know, we define as a part of like understanding mental health, for example, right? So when we look at this process, okay, we see that it has an interesting impact when we're trying to understand the fabric of our attitudes about sport. Because our attitudes about sport oftentimes have to do more so with a logic-driven approach than a rational-driven approach. Right? The logic-driven approach is observing, looking at one thing, seeing another thing, assuming that that first thing is the reason for the second thing. That's the logic, right? And that's that Aristotelian you know, pre-population explosion where we're saying that was kind of the dominant way of thinking. The other point of view is rational thinking, okay? And we're going to say rational thinking means taking these ideas and trying to understand them from the perspective of, can we actually prove or verify this through some sort of system or process? Can we create some sort of information, right? We might call it data that can demonstrate that. And when we look for this distinction, it can help us understand how we talk about sport in different ways.